while we're putting this in, I'll give you my journey. So I'm the first college graduate in my family. My father uh, was a family of eight on the Lower East Side in New York, and uh, he was a professional tap dancer who learned how to tap dance from an African-American janitor in a bank. He played the Apollo Theater, that's it. Um, I'm one of those people that was a child of the 60s. Uh, I wound up going to law school uh, uh, here at University of California at Berkeley, and uh, out of an act of insanity, I went back to New York, and I was a public defender in the South Bronx. Uh, and there I met my uh, partner, Peter Neufeld, and I began teaching law uh, 34 years ago at Cardozo Law School, and uh, due to the genius of uh, Dr. Watson and Dr. Crick, uh, and uh, uh, quite an incredible scientist named Eric Lander, uh, we accidentally wound up uh, uh, using DNA testing, both to uh, exclude people and exonerate them and use it to find people who really committed the crimes. And the first DNA exoneration, as you can see, was in 1989. In 1992, Justice Kennedy is a clinical program. Uh, we started the Innocence Project at Cardozo Law School. And since then, uh, we have had uh, 51 different projects in the United States, most of them at law schools, some of them at law firms, some of them now at public defender offices, uh, that will work to get people out of prison using DNA testing, but also non-DNA evidence. Uh, because, of course, what we discovered in the course of exonerating people with DNA evidence, uh, we began uh, from the beginning looking at what are the causes of wrongful convictions, what are the sources of error in the system, um, and they're, you know, in some ways pretty well known. We also have six projects, I should say, abroad. Uh, just to give you a general sense of it, uh, we just count the DNA exonerations because those are, frankly, bulletproof. We, uh, 50% uh, of the time, uh, uh, people are compensated or we find the real perpetrators, uh, but our colleagues at the University of Michigan have a registry of exonerations. We're looking at non-DNA exonerations. So actually, we're up to uh, 317 post-conviction DNA exonerations, uh, and when you look at non-DNA and start counting back from 1989, which we really look at as the DNA era, uh, or innocence movement era, uh, we're up to like uh, 1,700. Yesterday in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as I was coming here, Michelle Murphy was exonerated. She was convicted 20 years ago of uh, actually murdering her own infant who was found in the house where she was uh, actually knocked out uh, with her, the, the poor baby's throat was slit. Um, she was, uh, we didn't even expect uh, that the, uh, uh, both the dismissal of a case and a stipulation of actual innocence would happen yesterday in the Tulsa court, uh, but I will share with you the reason that it did happen is that the prosecutor uh, who tried the case uh, actually was sitting in his file uh, with uh, information that Michelle was blood type A and uh, suggested to the jury that a blood stain next to the baby's body, which was blood stain AB, could have come from her. And, of course, the defense lawyer was worthless and had no idea what was going on in the trial. So she was convicted based on junk science, prosecutorial misconduct, <clears throat> and they were able to get from her, uh, after a, a few hours, 19-year-old, uh, uh, a false confession. Uh, so uh, uh, that's yesterday. <laughs> uh, I thought I would just share with you, because Esperanza Spaulding uh, performed so brilliantly last night, yes? Um, uh, 
This is Cornelius Dupree, and he il illustrates uh, another cause of wrongful conviction. Cornelius, uh, when he was a teenager uh, in Texas, was walking down the street. There was a general description of an African-American man that supposedly had committed a rape, two of them. He was brought in put in a, uh, a series of suggestive uh, eyewitness identification procedures, identified, and he did 30 years in the state of Texas. Uh, so I would say in terms of causes, uh, the intractable problem of race uh, and eyewitness misidentification. Uh, but uh, Esperanza Spaulding, saw Cornelius get out of jail a few years ago, and as he, she saw him on television, and she immediately wrote a song about her. Um, and we had never met Esperanza before, uh, but uh, she put it on her second album, and then as she was touring the world um, with her Brazilian manager, if you're wondering why she had such great Portuguese last night, um, and uh, uh, she gave us uh, the, the Innocence Project and our affiliated projects, uh, uh, money from the sale of paraphernalia and uh, uh, CDs at her concert. Uh, but again, just as you saw, the key to all the work we're doing is being able to translate scientific achievement into reforming the law and exposing its error and changing it. Because all that the Innocence Project and the Innocence Movement has been about in the United States and internationally is not just exonerating people, but attacking the causes of the wrongful convictions with science. And I'm happy to tell you that uh, this month, we expect that the National Academy of Science is going to issue a report dealing with neuroscience and cognitive science uh, and uh, really memorialize what are best practices for how to do eyewitness identification procedures, which have been adopted recently by the Oregon Supreme Court, the New Jersey Supreme Court, and I hope pretty soon the Massachusetts Supreme Court. So that science, now applied to the law, is going to help law enforcement, and they are adopting it state by state. I think we're up to about 25 now that have best practices, minimize the chances of eyewitness misidentification. But if any of you are thinking, oh, this couldn't happen to me, here is Michael Morton. Michael Morton, college graduate, living in a bedroom community outside of Austin, uh, gets up in the morning to go to work, uh, 6.30 in the morning. Uh, it had been his birthday the night before. His wife fell asleep when he wanted to make love with her. They had a three-and-a-half-year-old kid, and he writes what, you know, is somebody that's been in a uh, f over 40-year marriage, right? I consider a very loving note. He writes this note, last night you fell asleep, sex in our marriage is a problem, let's talk about it, I love you, you're the greatest, right? Writes that note, puts it in the bathroom, goes to work. Then, right at, this is Michael and his wife, Christine. Right after that, a man we now know as Mark Allen Norwood comes into the house from a wooded area, beats Christine to death, while we now know three-and-a-half-year-old Eric was watching, right? Steals some, a gun, leaves the place. But when the sheriff arrives at 12 o'clock, when Eric is running around unsupervised, he immediately assumes that Michael went to work, staged a, to look like a burglary, and murdered his wife because she wouldn't have sex with him. Michael had good lawyers, had great lawyers, but he was convicted by junk science. 
the medical examiner came in and said, I'm looking at the stomach contents. Originally said that uh, the murder could have taken place at 7 a.m. And then testifying, you know, forensic pathology is more art than science. Uh, he said, I think this could only have happened at 2 a.m. Uh, and Michael, you know, who else is there at 2 a.m. except Michael and his wife? So he was convicted. He went to prison. Uh, we eventually found outside of the home, took us seven years of appeals, a bandana covered in blood. And it, we did DNA testing on it. It was Christine Morton's blood. The skin cells came from Michael. We put it into a DNA data bank. We got a hit, and we found Mark Allen Norwood. Even crazier, when we were investigating Norwood, we found that he lived in Austin, Texas, and two blocks away from where he lived in Austin, Texas, there was another break-in murder similar to this one, and we went to our friends in the district attorney's office and police department in Austin and found biological evidence there and linked Norwood to that murder. <clears throat> so Michael was exonerated. But here's the real story. This is Ken Anderson. Ken Anderson was the prosecutor in the case. On the eve of a Monday trial, uh, on a Friday, trial is Monday, Ken Anderson was asked by the judge, well, do you have any exculpatory evidence? Um, and the defense lawyers, who were very good, said, yeah, we know the lead investigator, investigator Wood, we've never seen his report. Uh, we want to see his report. And so the judge said, give me this report, what they call in camera. That means for the judge just to see. So an envelope is given to the judge with the re report of investigator Wood. Monday comes. The judge says, there's no exculpatory evidence here. He doesn't call Investigator Wood, so he never has to turn over his report under Texas law. And what happens? 25 years later, when we exonerate Michael Morton and we open up that envelope, we see that there's no exculpatory evidence in it, but we had done Open Record Act requests, and we found what was really in Investigator Wood's report. What's in his report? That there was a neighbor who had seen a green van pull up behind their home and a suspicious man get out and case it for a robbery, exactly the defense theory, right? They found that witness the next day, uh, that the three-and-a-half-year-old had told the in-laws that he had seen a monster hurt mommy and daddy wasn't there, that credit cards had been used of the deceased Christine Morton in San Antonio two weeks later, and on it went. Now, how do you deal with this? We actually figured out a pretty creative way under Texas law, and that is uh, we were able to persuade the Texas courts in an unusual proceeding called a court of inquiry that this man, Ken Anderson, the prosecutor in the case, who by that time was a judge in Williamson County, um, should be held in contempt because he was ordered to turn over uh, the exculpatory evidence but he did not, so he violated the order, and he, he was in contempt. Uh, only a misdemeanor in Texas, uh, but uh, uh, that got us around statute of limitations problem, and Ken Anderson was actually disbarred. He was found guilty of criminal contempt as a misdemeanor. He did eight days, um, and, uh, it, but to our knowledge, it's the first time that a, a, a prosecutor in the United States has ever been imprisoned for uh, deliberate failure to turn over exculpatory evidence. And the key to that was the order. <clears throat> but it gets better than that. Michael Morton, uh, who has written this book, uh, written a book called uh, Getting Life that you really ought to see, 
uh, uh, that's coming out right now, is an extraordinary man. He is a Christian. He is uh, uh, amazingly persuasive. I don't know if any of you saw him on 60 Minutes or a documentary that was on CNN that Wolf Blitzer had to watch 17 times uh, again and again called An Unreal Dream. But Michael, just by force of personality, was able to get the Senate and a House in Texas and Governor Perry to sign the Michael Morton Act, which requires all prosecutors to turn over evidence uh, that may, tends to negate guilt or mitigate punishment, which for technical reasons is independent and broader than Brady, and that orders be given so that people actually know that if they violate the orders, they can be held in contempt, which is uh, something that can be done in every uh, state and federal court in the United States except for California for technical reasons. But we think this ought to be a standing order of judges. So individuals can make such a difference. Michael Morton, bring him to all your universities uh, to speak. He's an extraordinary human, and it was his moral example that led to that. Finally. When I was inducted in 2008 uh, to the, Nash the American Academy of Achievement, my wife was yelling at me because I was going on and on about science, right, and how we had to get the scientific community involved in forensic science. Because what we learned is that DNA was the only real validated forensic assay that uh, law enforcement was using. That when it came to looking at striations on a bullet, tool marks on a bullet. Uh, they would get a gun, they'd fire a gun from a suspect, they'd look at the striations on the bullet, they'd compare it to the bullet recovered from the crime scene, and somebody would get up and say, uh, I can tell you that this bullet came from that gun to the exclusion of all guns in the universe. And uh, when the National Academy of Science started asking the ballistics people, well, what's your measurement error? They said, what are you talking about? They said, what's your database? They said, what are you talking about? Uh, and the same thing, to some extent, is true of fingerprints. This partial latent print comes from this individual to the exclusion of everyone in the world, and it's unique, and we have a zero error rate. Um, this was a problem. That's why the fingerprint identification systems are all screwed up, and they're, they're, they're not interoperable. It's a huge issue. Now, 2008, I was talking about what we expected the National Academy of Science to do. They came out with this report in 2009 about strengthening forensic science, where they said, we have got to get the mainstream scientific community, all the young people in this room uh, that are dealing with these issues. Think about this. Finally, it's begun to happen. The National Institute of Standards and Technology and the Justice Department have a memorandum of understanding, and they're beginning to set it up. You can tell that the government is acting because we have charts like this, right? <laughs> but this is the new chart that's been set up for a Forensic stand Science Standards Board. And finally, we have a Legal Resource Committee, uh, an Accreditation Committee, and frankly, very important, a Human Factors Committee because cognitive science is so important. You know, domain irrelevant information skews the way people read MRIs, CAT scans, fingerprint analysis, uh, you name it. Um, and then you can see that we have scientific area committees that are based in science, a biology DNA unit, a chemistry unit, a death investigation unit, IT multimedia, physics and pattern evidence. So we're trying to bring the scientific community into the forensic arena. 
NIST has put out a $20 million uh, challenge grant uh, that hopefully people are going to go uh, uh, try to get dealing with statistics, probabilities, and pattern evidence. Some people in this room, get your universities. We need the major universities to get involved in this. Most importantly, what we need is a center for excellence on forensic pathology. Forensic pathology in the United States uh, is in big trouble. The best medical examiners I know are in their 80s, okay? Uh, it is not a field that people go into, and it is, uh, uh, you know, we have a coroner system in many places where you don't even have to be a doctor, uh, but there are tremendous areas of controversy in forensic pathology. It just is not uh, the robust field that it should be. Uh, frankly, I can just throw this out there. I think that uh, medical examiners, as in Canada and the United Kingdom, should only be testifying about the cause of death. But for uh, reasons uh, that are historical, we have medical examiners testifying about the manner of death. And when they're testifying about the manner of death, all of a sudden they're coming into court and they're saying, well, I see this, but we know that the defendant confessed, we know that this witness said that, here's the mechanisms, and they start saying things that don't resemble science. Uh, so there are many challenges, and it's the scientists working with the legal system uh, in a very, very robust way uh, that is going to change everything. Uh, that's what I said in 2008, and I'm uh, really, really excited and optimistic that it's happening now. Thank you.